You're listening to Apollo 11 Legacies, a series of podcasts produced through a partnership with Intuitive Research and Technology Corporation and WHNT News 19. Where can we beat the Soviets? I mean, we, we continually stayed behind. And Kennedy understood how important American prestige was overseas. He understood the ramifications of the Cold War. He was living it very hot in his first year. That's Brian Odom, the NASA historian at Marshall Space Flight Center. He was answering a question about President John Kennedy's decision to promise Congress in 1961 and the American people in 1962 that this country would put men on the moon within the decade of the 60s. I'm Steve Johnson, and in a conversation with Brian at the WHNT News 19 studio, I asked him about Kennedy's promise. In 1961, President Kennedy told Congress that we were going to the moon within the decade of the 60s. In 1962, he uh, made a famous speech at Rice University where we choose to go to the moon and these other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. And, 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 And when I think about that, I think, easy to say hard, but the folks back at Marshall were making it happen. What did that mean to Marshall Space Flight Center when Kennedy made that public? Well, I think it was basically doubling down on something that was already in place, right? The Saturn program predated Marshall. It was it was in the works from the Army days. So it was something they had thought about. Von Brown and his team of Germans and Americans, they thought about these things already. So when Kennedy makes this pledge, after only 15 minutes of U.S. space flight, it gave them a certain you know, vindication for the work that was already in place, but it gave them a purpose, it gave them a meaning, and now looking forward, they knew the hard work was there, yeah. but they knew the goal was set for them. Okay, now I've heard, and maybe it's an apocryphal story, that, that Kennedy called Von Braun to double check, or at least a phone call was made to find out, yeah, can we do this that I'm promising? A lot of what was in place was Kennedy said, where can we beat the Russians? Sputnik yeah. under Eisenhower's administration, but Gagarin under Kennedy's administration, yeah. and he was just coming so, off. So, and well, let's go for folks who don't know. Gagarin yeah. was the first human in space. Yeah, the so, first, so they beat us with satellite and with humans. Yeah, they had beaten us twice already. And what Kennedy asked his advisors, Jerome Wisner, down through Lyndon Johnson, yeah. his vice president, is, "Where can we beat the Soviets?" I mean, we we continually stayed behind. And Kennedy understood how important American prestige was overseas. He understood the ramifications of the Cold War. He was living it very hot in his first year. So he, you know, sends letters through Johnson. Johnson communicates with all of NASA saying, where is this place we will be able to beat them? And Von Braun contributes to that process saying, they don't have the ability to do this, to land on the moon. And Kennedy takes that advice, he doubles down on it, and he moves forward from there. Okay, so it strikes me just from what I know that with no Von Braun, no German rocket team, maybe no American presence on the moon in, in the decade of the 60s. Is, as a historian, is that a, an accurate reading of, of, of history? I think it's, it's, it has issues. Because I think if you remember correctly, there's only a small group of Germans that come yeah. over. But what they brought with them was not a theoretical standpoint that people didn't know, yeah. but an engineering experience solving hard problems about spaceflight, solving problems about ballistic missiles, solving problems about guidance and control. Yeah. They'd worked these things out. They'd gone through the failures. They gave Americans a jump start and a framework. But as soon as they get here to Fort Bliss and as soon as they move to Huntsville, 
they're joined by thousands of engineers from across the country and continuation of engineers across the world. So it gives you a it gives you a head start. It gives you a framework for moving forward. But the hard work is still you know yeah. 19 years in the future from that point forward. And so Americans played a key role in that. But also it, it was very useful. Okay, now let's say uh, and, and it's 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 certainly clear that the German rocket team they led. At, at, at Redstone Arsenal, but but if you talk to any of the the old timers, and they will tell you that they made it, the Germans made it very apparent that they were part of a team, and and maybe maybe was that one of the secrets they had that everybody was invested in this team thing in Marshall. I think that's that's one of the things about that was true then, but it's also something that's true in successes now at NASA because the Germans' leadership and that you're right, they they were the leadership of Marshall going forward. They were the lab directors. They were in the key positions. They were solving at the top those key technical problems. But you know, I, I think that's so. I, so I think that's one way to look at it. But still, very quickly on, you're looking at the detailed work down yeah. in the labs. The Germans are the leaders. The Germans are out front, but the rest of the entire team, very high functioning team, uh, a young team, that's something yeah. that's forgotten too. I mean, you're talking about people in their 20s, early 30s, solving at the top of these key technical challenges to get to the moon. And that's, to me, that's phenomenal. Well, one of the interesting things, there's a, a friend of mine, the late Axel Roth, who was an uh, assistant director, associate director at Marshall. Uh, his father, one of the original German rocket scientists, Axel went to Auburn, got his engineering degree, and came back to work at Marshall Space Flight Center in 1964, mm -hmm. which would have been right at the beginning of doing all the hard work. Uh, I, I find that in incredibly interesting that the, you know that there was already a generational thing going for this development of this rocket. Exactly. I mean, that's something that we forget about the space program is that the Germans come over here in 1946, yeah. 45, 46. So you're still yeah. talking about 1969. That's a yeah. long time to develop these teams, a long time to learn new lessons post V2. Uh, it's, and it is the work of generations. You have, uh, again, Axel is, is one of these very important people, but you know, people who were cutting their teeth in engineering schools across the country in the 50s as the Cold War yeah. is breaking out. Sputnik even is influencing people to change career majors, to, to look at maybe I'm not gonna do biology, maybe I'm gonna do science because the promise of what can happen in the future is proven out. And so even that late, people are making these decisions about how they'll contribute. You're listening to a conversation with NASA historian Brian Odom about the Apollo program. We'll return to that in just a moment. Now let's get back to our conversation with NASA historian Brian Odom. I'm Steve Johnson, and we're talking about the Apollo program. When you look at uh, what Kennedy does in with the creation or, or with the expansion of NASA, what had started under Eisenhower yeah. but was beginning was a Southern Crescent, right? Yeah. All of these facilities in Florida for a particular reason for launches, but in Huntsville, beginning in New Orleans, yeah. in South Mississippi, in Houston. I mean, it takes on a Southern accent and that yeah. we just had a symposium that looked at really NASA in the South and its impact across the board, economically, politically, and, and how it transforms Southern education. It places like historically black colleges and universities, Alabama A&M, you know, a, a college that one of the only four-year colleges in town when the German group arrives in 1950. It will grow its math and science programs. It will grow STEM education. Yeah. It will turn to things that 
careers that have been previously barred to African Americans in the South. And, you know, uh, and developing those programs was critical to the success of, of this program, but also locally. It, so it has a, it's still, that process that you're yeah. describing still has an important bearing, both at Alabama A&M and next door at University of Alabama Huntsville. That, okay. that still resonates. All right, let's go back to Kennedy's promise. Mm -hmm. And, and we, you already said that the work was already underway. But uh, do you think the American people had any idea how tough the technical challenges were to go from, as you said, 15 minutes of space flight? Yeah, and, and there were programs like, you know, Mercury was beginning to yeah. solve those problems. But then the Gemini program, right? Gemini, what it was doing was teaching Americans to do something that the Soviets had never been able to perfect, yeah. that docking and rendezvousing in yeah. space, something that would be so important going forward. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of hard work, but it, you know, if you talk to people here at Marshall and you talk to people in Huntsville who worked on that program, that was inspiring, right? Because everything was a challenge. Yeah. You were a subject matter expert in a field of one. You were a subject matter and an expert of, of a fields that were just beginning to develop before, you know, you were yeah. contributing not only to this larger project and this larger goal, but you were understanding science and engineering in a way that there was no textbook for at the time. These people were writing the textbooks with the work that they're doing, and so there's that cyclical gratification yeah. of that type of work. You know, these days when we do a test and the test doesn't work, failure. <laughs> but, but I have been told that, that in the Apollo program, we tested and had lots of failures. Lots of things blew up on the pad yeah. that, that, that you test because you want to find out what what's going on. Is am I correct? There? Exactly. I think the the, the biggest uh, you know the, the thing that you hear most all is fail down here so we don't yeah. fail up there. Failure down here taught you where the margins were. It said we're going to push this thing to failure to see where that is, and then we're going to build in margins. We're going to make this, and the Germans were great about this and the contributions of making these systems so robust. They were much more powerful than you needed, right? But that was part of that process. Where where in the system are the are the difficult pieces? Let's bring our energies there. We'll test, 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 yeah. test because we don't want to fail. And you know, in January of 1967, the failure on Apollo One yeah. was again this pullback and this think about when humans are involved in this and what it is that we're doing yeah. and what that might mean if we rush and if we fail. Yeah. And so let's let's return, let's retreat. But let's never forget what we did there. Okay, and one of the things, and I forget which mission it was, I believe it was one of the unmanned missions, uh, where they had something called pogoing that they discovered, where the fuel would move up and down the fuel lines. Uh, you know, you know, we've launched rockets and all, but this a complex rocket like this, they, they, they were learning on every flight, which is kind of strange, you think. It's like, you know, having an Indy car at about the fifth race, you're like, hey, that doesn't work right. But I mean, that, that was the kind of thing they were in this complex uh, project. Exactly. And George Miller, you know, his idea of going all up, counterintuitive for the Germans. They said, no, let's test. And what all up was, was the Germans wanted to test the first stage then test yeah. the second stage. And so incremental approach. But what Miller says is we don't have time for that. Kennedy has told us we have to yeah. do it by the end of the decade, and that's what we have to deal with. So let's change that. We're gonna do an all up test. And that's what Apollo 4 was. Apollo 4, flawless, yeah. beautiful, everything works great. But Apollo 6, there'd been these problems. Yeah. First stage pogo, and it's just- And it, weren't there some shimmies in that there was vibration that exactly. they had not encountered before? Yeah, they'd encountered it on different programs yeah. like with the Atlas program mm -hmm. and other other programs like that, but they'd never, they never, they understood how that might happen and they understood fixes, but they hadn't seen it before. Again, yeah. like you said, the, it just hadn't shown up in testing, but they understood quickly, okay, for Apollo 6, we've got this problem in the first stage. We can fix that. 
we know what yeah. causes it and we don't want to see it happen again they make the corrections and then by the time you get to you know the next flight which would be the flight to the yeah. moon you know yeah. coming off something that didn't go well yeah. let's double down again and send apollo 8 around the around the yeah. moon just the incredible audacity of such an approach like that but again, speaking to the confidence they had in people here at Huntsville and the work that they were yeah. doing and, and giving them the credit that they understood where the problems were. You know, one of the things, I've, this is probably not a route, but I was always amazed that they even knew the questions to ask. Since we were doing something we had never done before. So, I mean, it stands to reason they would be finding out things, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. Right, and that's the importance of the test, right? The importance of the test were to fail. What questions should we have asked yeah. when we have a failure? Combustion instability. I know Sonny Morea is somebody local yeah, who's yeah. just a wonderful guy, but Sonny's somebody who was brought in to solve a problem that they didn't even understand. And to tell you the truth, they never understood it. Still don't to some degree. They understand what's happening and they know how to characterize it, but they're, but they're not real sure. So they, they instituted these baffles and just a whole using, you know, small grain bombs to drive engines unstable. You know, so again, it's just this, you know, I, you know, I talk it, about it, you know, this redneck engineering, <laughs> redneck rocketry, uh, where you just try stuff and you say, well, maybe this will work. That's Brian Odom, a NASA historian at Marshall Space Flight Center. And we'll hear more of what Brian has to say about the Apollo program in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with NASA historian Brian Odom. There was this feeling, and I've had multiple people tell me this, they could not wait to go to work. Yeah. And th that is something that I, this was the kind of project where you got up in the morning and decided, oh, heck, I don't have to be there for two hours. I'm going now. I can get some work done. They were that into it. Exactly. I mean, and that's, that's multiple reasons. But, you know, if you think about it, the key thing was you were contributing, as we've mentioned, to this great program, this national effort, something that humanity had never done before. And so that gave you some motivation. Uh, but also, you didn't want to be the reason that you don't meet that deadline. And people will tell me that all the time. We didn't want it to be us. We wanted to overlearn. We wanted to overwork. But, but that, it wasn't like that was a drudgery. It was, it was constantly new, constantly learning, and you were part of something larger than yourself. And there are not many fields out there like that, right? I mean, and, and this was at a time when, you know, the world seemed, you know, new and fresh, and there weren't many things technology couldn't do, right? Technology was like this, a paradigm shift in what we'd seen before, a way that, you know, we would, you know, understand problems in ways we hadn't before. And if we can do this, what else, you know, the old saying, if we can land a man on the moon, why can't we do this? Well, there was that feeling then that this technology was, was earth, it was, it was changing humanity for yeah. the better. Okay, there's some, we're, we're going to have to have you back again because I don't want to <laughs> get into, we don't have enough time to do the full Apollo hey. 11 part. But uh, while all this was going on at Marshall, while all this work, this town, which had a population of 16,000 in 1950, was like booming. It was, it, was, exactly. it, was, it was living up to the name it had gotten earlier of the Rocket City, and, and, and that was a big deal. Exactly. Uh, you know, that, that whole process, and I think about it as domestic immigration, immigration from across the country, uh, from places like Detroit, from California, from New York, kind of flooding in here, housing issues, road issues, school issues. And, you know, the city of Huntsville, the leadership here in Huntsville, was sol we're solving those very challenging problems. How to make sure that we don't overgrow, how we don't have, 
critical problems that we see in larger cities and things like that. How, how can we be special? And they solved those problems beautifully. But at that same time in the 1960s, there's a civil rights movement yeah. that's having an even greater impact, a transformational time where all of these are taking place, desegregation in the city. Huntsville understood that it was the space program and it was that federal investment that was making all this possible. But how to manage and mold and shape yeah. and, and, and live within all that and, and create an environment that we have today, a cosmopolitan city of you know, one of the greatest technology centers in, in the world, basically. And that's those problems that were solved back then, you know, from a history guy's standpoint, yeah. they're so critical in understanding where we are today. And if Huntsville wants to continue to grow, and it does, if you look at Blue Origin coming in and the different things that they're gonna do for restoration, you know, Huntsville's story is not over, but it begins there and they lay this solid foundation. Yeah. And so the hard work for Apollo was critical in that process. You've been listening to NASA historian Brian Odom talking about the Apollo program as it developed and eventually led to the Apollo 11 moon mission. The conversation was recorded at the WHNT News 19 studio and is the first of two conversations with Brian Odom about the Apollo program and Apollo 11. We invite you to listen to our other podcasts on this subject and more as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon mission. Go to the Apollo 11 tab at the top of our website, whnt.com, where you'll also find other interesting items on North Alabama's contribution to America's manned spaceflight history. Apollo 11 Legacies is produced in partnership with Intuitive Research and Technology. Content made possible with the U.S. Space and Rocket Center's Legacy Panel Lecture Series. Music provided by Megatracks.